fuego en mi alma. Hola, ¿cómo estás? I'm your host, Lisa Delay, Lisa Colón Delay. We are celebrating today Latinx History Month or Hispanic Heritage Month, which is a weird mix of two months, September 15th through October 15th. My friend Karen Gonzalez said that one of the reasons why some Latinx people don't like the word Hispanic is because it refers to the language of our colonizers rather than the part of the world where we or our families originate. She says, no term is perfect, but I prefer Latinx Heritage Month. Karen and two other beautiful Latinas have started a new podcast, Café con Comadres, Café with Comadres. I urge you to listen to that. Their first episode is called We Are Not a Monolith, and this refers to the many different countries, cultures, ethnicities bound up in the word Latinx or Hispanic. There's a huge wide range, and this is a great time of the year to delve into what it is to be Latinx, Latino, Latina, Hispanic. It's not just about going to Chi-Chi's. It's not just about immigration. A lot of times the things that white dominant culture will see in the news really shortchanges the beautiful Latinx culture. There's a rich history there, and I invite you to enjoy it. Today I'm featuring an amiga cubana de Miami, Kat Armas, and this is part of my way of celebrating Latinx History Month. Kat was born in Miami, and her book, Abuelita Faith, that came out this summer is a wonderful introduction into something that's sometimes part of what we call kitchen theology. Abuelita Faith is subtitled, What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, persistence, and strength. Unfortunately, the first time Kat and I tried to record together, that recording didn't come out, but we met again, and she was so gracious, and we enjoyed our time together in our conversation, and that is what I bring to you now. Please listen and enjoy and share this. Get the book Abuelita Faith and support your siblings who are from Latinx heritage. Thank you. Gracias. Welcome, everyone, to Spark My Muse. I'm your host, Lisa DeLay, and today on my podcast is Kat Armas, the author of Abuelita Faith, What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength. And I'll get us started by reading a little bit of the back matter of this book. I was fortunate to get an advanced copy, and I really have enjoyed this book also because of my own Latin American heritage, but the way this speaks to whose voices count. And when we're speaking about theology, I think this is a really important kind of book to be out in the mainstream. So the summary on the back says, Kat Armas is a second generation Cuban American, grew up in the outskirts of Miami's famed Little Havana neighborhood. Her earliest theological formation came from her grandmother, her abuelita, who fled Cuba during the height of political unrest and raised three children alone after her husband passed away. Combining personal storytelling with biblical reflection, Armas shows us how voices on the margins, those often dismissed, isolated, and oppressed because of their gender, socioeconomic status, 
or lack of education have more to teach us about following God than we realize. And so welcome, Kat. Thank you for coming. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm super happy to be here. And so I'll also read the author bio, and it's changed a little bit probably since the back matter of this book because you you had a move, but Kat is um, a alumni of Fuller Theological Seminary where she has an MDiv and MAT. She's a speaker and writer and the host of the Protagonistas podcast, which I was really excited to be a guest there. Yeah, She highlights stories of everyday women of color, including writers, pastors, church leaders, and theologians. She's written for Christianity Today, Sojourners, Relevant, Christians for Biblical Equality, Fuller Youth Institute, Fathom Magazine, and Missio Alliance, and has recently moved to Nashville and, and also is very, very pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> I am. <laughs> I'll try to work that in uh, towards the end. So tell me what you're up to right now in Nashville of all places. Yeah, well, I, um, as you mentioned, recently just moved here from Los Angeles, um, where I was uh, finishing up at Fuller. Um, and, you know, my spouse and I decided to move here just to be closer to family. And I was also applying um, to different programs for PhD or THM kind of work. Um, I got pregnant in the midst of all that. So I decided to do the THM instead of the PhD. Um, but I'll be starting that at Vanderbilt in January. So I'm super mm-hmm. excited. I'll be working with um, Dr. Fernando Segovia um, and we'll be working on, yeah, post-colonial and biblical studies. So um, I'll be continuing a little bit of what I sort of began uh, in Awalita Faith. So it'll be a lot of fun. Oh, that's great. It's interesting to have a person with Caribbean heritage on because when people who are listening who are not um, from Latin American heritage listen, a lot of times all of that gets kind of lumped into one big lump and yeah, people will assume like that you like hot tamales from Mexico or something like that. <laughs> right. Realize how how different, how multifaceted and not monolithic Latin right. American people are extremely. And there are some similarities in the Caribbean. And a lot of it has to do with the colonization by Spain, mm-hmm. which is very true for Puerto Rico and Cuba. But the paths of these sort of sibling islands really, really, really go in different directions after the Spanish-American War. Just a little little mm-hmm. tiny bit of history here where Cuba gets their independence, Puerto Rico becomes colonized and occupied, and then comes the, the communist revolution and Fidel Castro, mm-hmm. where this really works into what happened with your family and their fleeing from the island. And so maybe you can talk about more specifically your Abuelita's story and what got her and your relatives to the States. Yeah, that's a a great question. Um, And yeah, I'm so glad that you you mentioned that. I know it's um, Hispanic Heritage Month is coming up. And I think about this so much about how, you know, we're so many of our communities and you know as latine latinx people were sort of all just like shoved into this one category when there is just so much you know obviously diversity and and you know just so many differences among our cultures and our communities um and so yeah and you know in my book i really really try and focus um on my experience specifically my cuban american experience which 
you know, living in LA, for example, being surrounded by a lot of Central American and Mexican communities, I just felt very, you know, it was very different. My story is very different. My background is very different. Um, and so many folks would just kind of assume that I am familiar with, you know, Central or, or Mexican culture. And I was like, no, I'm actually learning just as, you know, much as you are, right? Um so my personal story, um, you know, begins with, and, and in my book, I, I really try and um, go all the way back to, as you mentioned, you know, like the, the indigenous people of the Caribbean, the Tainos, um, you know, who do play a role in my own an- ancestry and into, you know, who I am and the country that birthed, you know, my, my family, my immediate family. But um, so my story specifically intersects with the U.S., I guess you can say, um, as you mentioned, around the the revolution in 1959, and that was just such an interesting time because you know I always I always think about how everything sort of happened in like the perfect storm, I guess you can say. Mm. You know, it was uh, the height of the Cold War, and like communism was like the you know buzz thing. As many people have pointed out, you know, Castro, he was very popular when he first, you know, began his sort of campaign um, because he was trying to separate from the U.S. empire, you know, really trying to because, uh, of course, you know, as we know, the U.S. has exploited many a Latin American countries. So he just kind of wanted to separate from that. Um, and many folks just point out, you know, obviously it didn't go well. Um, a lot of exploitation and a lot of oppression began to happen. and you know, when he came into power in the early 1960s, a lot of people just started fleeing. Um, you know, things just started closing down and, and things were re- being redistributed in private schools. And, you know, there was a lot of fear and a lot of panic, um, you know, and then after that, food became scarce and, and just it was a really hard time. And so the first wave of folks who escaped were primarily white and wealthy, um, and they were able to, you know, arrive in Miami. And really use their wealth and use their privileges and, you know, sort of use their early or really just their status and their early arrivals to, to sort of set up this very Cuban community in Miami. Um, and then from there, you just had d- different waves of people, um, you know, working class or just older people, younger people. And, and my family was around the second wave. But my grandfather, actually, he um, he was a, an anti-Castro agitator at first. And, you know, they, they were kind of plotting, like, how they were going to get him out of power. And one night, he, you know, received a knock on the door. And they said, you know, the government's coming to arrest you in the morning. You have to leave now. And so he got on a raft with a couple other people. And, yeah, they just made their their way to um, the United States, to the, you know, to Miami area, Key West. Um, and that's how he ended up here. And so I, I feel like my story is is kind of interesting in that sense that, you know, I am part of the, the wave of people, of Cuban people that arrived in Miami and sort of, you know, have found um, just their home in Miami. You know, Miami is a very Latino Latinx city, um, but very predominantly Cuban. And so, you know, growing up, I experienced a lot of privileges in the sense that I was part of the dominant culture. And so I never really had to wrestle with my ethnic identity as a child, you know, outside of a very predominantly Cuban setting. You know, it wasn't until I left Miami as an adult that I, 
you know, sort of, I write this in my book, but became a brown person overnight, you know. My abuelo is considered a, what they would call a balsero, you know, he came on a boat, on a raft, um, and just, you know, had a lot of, of struggles early on. Um, the the story of the Cuban Americans is, is just very unique. Um, you know, they have been used as pawns and political games for so long. And, you know, they have been able to establish themselves in the U.S. differently than other um, Latin American or Latinx groups in the U.S. So, yeah, it's a little bit of our story. Yeah. And I think you had mentioned, too, when we had talked previously that because the fleeing Cubans represented an anti-communist sentiment, they were right. often welcomed with open arms, unlike other refugees that have come that have been people of color and it should be underscored too that latin american people can be white can be brown can be black and there is colorism among latin american people themselves there are sometimes you know people get it in their head i mean i've I've heard this i'm sure you have too in in some ways i would have never guessed you were puerto rican Mm -hmm. or it's the other kind of puerto rican people i'm talking about people say to me they mean the dark ones, you know. Right. Which is yeah. plenty of people in my family, but not me. Right. And like you're saying, brown or black or white to whom? Because it depends on which community you're in or what surroundings mm-hmm. you're in, what color you're considered. And I right. think that that's really um, something I don't think the general white population tends to think about. They'll think about it in relation to themselves and their dominance. So. Mm-hmm. It's just good to have a broader picture. And this story that that you've written in your book that is many stories really but is primarily about your abuelita and what some people call kitchen theology but it is very personal it is very intimate mm-hmm. familial but is based on relationship essentially and I would like it if you could speak a little bit to what you are really referring to or driving at when you say abuelita faith and how is that different than something like abuela faith or just um, faith that gets passed down as it would in any family yeah that's a great question um well um well first i'll say the difference between abuela and abuelita um so in you know in spanish language uh or just a lot of latinx culture will add Ita or ito um, to the end of a word as a sort of term of endearment. Um, and so when I say, you know, the word is abuela, which means grandmother. But when I say abuelita, it's sort of just like, yeah, as you mentioned, like my personal grandmother. It's it's um, a word of that means sort of love and, you know, endearing and that sort of thing. And so, yeah. And so in my book, I, I write that, that there's not one abuelita theology, but there are multiple abuelita theologies. Um, and I think that that stems from, as you were mentioning earlier, just the diversity in the the Latinx experience and, um, you know, how we all have, you know, you can't talk about a grandmother without it being very intimate and very, very personal. And so mm. I say that, you know, what I'm articulating as an abuelita faith is one of many, um, but I hope it is sort of a, an invitation for, for folks to explore their own abuelita faith, their own experiences with abuelita theology. Um, And so what I mean by that, um, you did mention kitchen theology, and that's, you know, that's a part of it. It's uh, 
theology that is formed in the informal space um, where life sort of just happens, you know, um, around the kitchen table, you know, I, I say where when the floor is being mopped and the cafecito is brewing and, you know, the, the black beans are simmering on the stove and early morning until the night, you know, until it's ready for dinner. And um, I think that a sort of Awalita faith is a is an informal but yet very um very legitimate and moving and serious kind of faith, you know, and, and that's something that I, I sort of argue in my book as well is, you know, looking at this idea of wisdom and mm. this idea of knowledge and who gets to say who is wise and what is wisdom and what is mm. knowledge. Um, and I think for me, when I talk about an Awalita theology, I'm, I'm talking about the wisdom of our grandmothers and our ancestors and those who have not been able to, you know, receive quote unquote formal theological education, but who have still served as the theologians in our families and in our lives and the sort of functional priestesses and <laughs> priests and the, you know, um, those kinds of, of roles that really many of us have been formed by, you know, whether it's our biological grandmother or uh, whether it's, um, you know, a spiritual sort of grandparent. But yeah, and for me, an Awalita theology is um, just a, a theology that that is real, that is raw, you know, that that takes into consideration survival, and and it's not heady, but it is, um, you know, it is embodied. And so, um, yeah, that's what I, I I try and argue for in in my book, and also doing so through the lens of scripture and just pointing out all the ways that theology is embodied in the Bible. Mm-hmm. That's so important to mention. I think we do have to make people uncomfortable when they have ideas that only certain voices count or only certain educations count. Right. Um, and we were speaking about this before about the kind of wisdom and the kind of spirituality that your abuelita gave to you and whether she was intending to actually give you a word of wisdom or you're just watching her and learning from her. Right. It is about survival because it isn't necessarily coming from someone with abundance and privilege and they're trying to get by. You know, a lot of right. the abuelita faith isn't from any sort of privilege. It's, it's from how do we make it through this life right. and what helps us get by and and faith is extremely important. It's how people survive, really, you know. Right, yeah. And you were speaking um, a little bit about some of the the trials and the tribulations, a very difficult path that your abuelita had as she lived in the States and as she made her way once her husband died. And maybe you can just pull out a few of the the nuggets that you retain from her that, that still carry so much weight that she's instilled in you. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, it, you're exactly right. You know, it is a, an abuelita theology is, is a theology of survival. And I think that that is um, what's so crucial to it that, you know, so much of, of people's stories are really just stories of survival. And, you know, as I was reflecting on this abuelita theology and, you know, particularly through the lens of scripture and that's something that stood out to me over and over again. And, and, you know, when I'm looking at, you know, specifically the lives of women um, in the Bible, overlooked and unnamed women like our abuelitas, who in many ways are overlooked and unnamed, you know, so much of it was, yeah, like you said, just them trying to make it to the next day. You know, we, 
we like to romanticize a lot of the stories in the Bible, but they're really just stories of, you know, like the story of Ruth and Naomi, who, you know, I always mention this, but it's so romanticized and oh, how sweet her and Boaz. But I mean, it really was just Naomi, hey, you know, telling Ruth like, hey, you need to go do this and you need to go meet up with this guy here because we, you know, we need to find you a husband so that we don't end up alone, you know. Um, and so, so much of it was survival, the story of Tamar, the story of, you know, of so many women. And as I was reflecting on these stories and, you know, kind of looking at my own grandmother's life, I, I realized over and over again, like, this is my grandmother's story. You know, this is the story of so many of our abuelitas, um, you know, our immigrant abuelitas or, you know, just our marginalized abuelitas. Like, this is their story. Um, and so, you know, my grandmother, she she became a widow unexpectedly uh, when she first arrived to this country. And she was raising, you know, three children. And one of them was uh, my, my mother actually was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And so at a very young age, at six years old, you know, she was trying to keep her alive, essentially, you know, um, and learn about this, this whole new world of, of, you know, what it means to raise a sick daughter. And, and also, you know, I talk about how food is, is so important in, in, in many of our Latinx cultures. And so, you know, diabetes obviously affects the, what you can eat and how and when and, and all of that. And so, um, yeah, so all of these, these experiences, my grandmother, was just literally trying to <laughs> to keep her family alive and and through that it was her faith that really got her um that that was able to to give her strength and give her you know and my grandmother didn't you know live a she she was very committed to the catholic church but you know, she didn't lead a Bible study. She didn't know like the quote unquote right way to exegete a passage. Like that wasn't a priority for her, you know, her, her priority was just to survive. And, and as I mentioned in scripture, I see this so much of how, you know, God, God is in the midst of that. And God blesses that God blesses survival. God cares about survival, you know, um, God cares about how, and, women in the Bible are, are making it to the next day. And if they, you know, how, and in, in, what is going on behind the scenes of them trying to feed their families? Like these are all, you know, spiritual and holy and sacred things. Um, and so my grandmother, you know, one of the things that I reflect on now is she, you know, she provided for our family and she served the community through her sewing. And and that was just, you know, the love, that was her passion, her love. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also a way that she served God and serves, like I mentioned, her community. And it was a way that she used her hands and her embodied wisdom. And, and you know, by just, you know, our house was constantly swinging open with people mm-hmm. coming over for fittings and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and she knew the measurements of our bodies and mm-hmm. she, yeah. So it was just um, reflecting on that now, like her love for sewing was so much more than, um, you know, just just a cute thing that she did. <laughs> you know, it was a spiritual thing. It was a way she provided. And, and we see that also in the Bible, you know, through the story mm-hmm. of Tabitha, how Tabitha sewed for the community and, mm-hmm. you know, and she was resurrected in the New Testament, one of the only, mm-hmm. one of the few people resurrected. And so, yeah, you know, part of this journey has been looking at my grandmother's story and ways that her everyday sort of survival um, was sacred and holy. And and it was an outworking of her faith and it was, um, yeah, just deeply spiritual. One of the things we have touched on that's a little cheeky for, for Spanish speakers, but, but for 
for our English speaking folks and, and white folks, it's not going to be that jarring. But <laughs> the joder, jodiendo, ethical praxis, and yeah. how Jesus was born from a line of women doing some trickery right. to survive, but that that is not punished by God. That is right. actually done in a sacred kind of way to bring about the incarnation of God. This is an interesting thing I haven't never seen in a book before, but it's probably also because I haven't really sought after this this type of reading as well. This whole idea that you get at, at page 109, mm-hmm. we're talking about some of the the ways women in the Bible had to use what they had to use. Maybe it was their sexuality or maybe mm-hmm. it was... Um, their place in society that they kind of turn things around to survive or to, in the case of Ruth, she had to find a provider in Boaz. It wasn't just mm-hmm. some romance, like you said. It right. was like, are we going to starve to death? Are we going right. to find you a husband? Because women had such a, a low state in society. But maybe you can speak to this uh, praxis that you get to in the book, because I think it's really clever to speak to this, that women are often shamed for these things. I mean, highly, highly shamed. It appears that God sees this as an underdog situation that is actually blessed. Right. Yeah. That's something that I was so fascinated by, you know, as I'm doing this sort of reading and research and, and trying to um, read the Bible through this lens is just the notion that yeah, I mean, survival is complicated, right? Survival is very complicated. It doesn't look um, the way the dominant culture may expect it to look. Mm-hmm. You know, it looks messy. And um, a lot of that, as you mentioned, involves people doing what they have to do. And, you know, that's not going to look, you know, nice and pretty and neat. Um, in many ways, people have to engage things like trickery and deceit. And women, primarily, I mean, the one tool that many of the women in scripture have is their sexuality, you know, they're able to use or manipulate their sexuality in order to get what they need in order to survive. And we see this over and over and over again, you know, um, as you mentioned, the story of Ruth, or as I mentioned earlier, in the story of Tamar, and we even see this, you know, in the story of the midwives, Shipra and Pua, who, you know, lie to Pharaoh, they're essentially like playing the game of empire in order to save the the baby boys that Pharaoh had ordered to be killed. And, and they're, you know, they're lying to him and even his own daughter, you know, does that. And so we see this so much um, of people just doing the deeply, particularly women, doing the deeply right thing, um, you know, in order to enact justice and liberation um, Mm -hmm. for others. And yeah, and that's something that, you know, we see not only in the Bible, but throughout history. I mean, women have to use, I I like to say that liberation or, or, you know, justice or so many of these things that these women are seeking survival um you know it involves creativity and ingenuity what i find just so fascinating is that god blesses it god is in the midst of it not just that but i mean these women that use their bodies and these women that are are creative and are sneaky and are tricksters you know they are included in the genealogy of jesus you know mm-hmm. um and so we have in many ways um, simplified 
you know, maybe the Bible or, or turn the Bible into a rule book or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, when really what we have are stories that are um, just incredible stories of creativity and ingenuity and, you know, because of survival and stories of, um, yeah, things that we wouldn't, you know, we would think are too scandalous to teach, you know, in a, in a Bible study class, but they're just reality. You know, as I mentioned, survival is complicated. They're actually normal people in right. the Bible. They're not like these sanctified, saintly. You have Rahab who's like lying. She's right. she's like probably a mistress of prostitutes and whatnot herself. And uh, she's like, she's being saved from destruction. She's in the line of David. You know, it's, right. it's a big, mm-hmm. she's honored. Yeah. You know, that's not what we would do as most humans we'd be like wait a minute she gets it she gets included she gets right a seat at the table exactly (laughs) high honor yeah and it's interesting because god see does see the heart you know god sees um that she was doing what she had to do to survive in her environment and then when she saw that she could escape and be saved she took it and right. it involves some lying and, yeah. you know, and, and it's not possible for some people to have all the same access and privilege that mm-hmm. other people have. And I think that's, that's the reality of this world. And right. not to say you should go out and like have a criminal yeah. life or something, yeah. but it's just that we are really easy to judge people Exactly. For whom we don't have that life, we we don't have those difficult choices of how to get food or medicine or something like that. Right, exactly. I know that I wanted to talk about the idea of truth telling as being considered divisive. If you're not one of the dominant people, you can mm-hmm. be told that you're divisive or disruptive or worse. You know, and right. you've probably experienced that in your own life. How does that fit in with Awili, the theology, or what you've been taught by your grandmother and being a strong Latina? Yeah. Um, well, I think, like, you know, going off of what we were just talking about, this idea of just, you know, survival. And and I think that, you know, when when you are, when you belong to or when you come from or when you are acquainted with um, folks who are, attempting to survive. I mean, you don't have any other option in many ways other than to just tell the truth, you know, about mm-hmm. your experiences and to tell the truth. And I think that that was something that, you know, when I transitioned to Protestantism, I mean, I was raised Roman Catholic, um, an immigrant, you know, Catholic community in Miami. And when I transitioned to Protestantism and I, you know, began to just see so much of, of what I, and by Protestantism, I specifically mean, you know, a very white evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. And that was very um, jarring for me, you know, mm-hmm. and so my experiences, I just remember, like, so much of what I was learning about God, and so much what I was learning about the Bible, it just really didn't add up or, or just really didn't mm. fit with my experiences. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of my professors who were white and male, you know, they taught from very specific contexts and a very specific lens, um, mm. you know, rural Southern sort of frameworks. And, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. It was just um, 
that was very much taught as the norm or that was very much taught as like sort of, you know, this is how we understand God, period, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that just didn't, you know, that wasn't my experience whatsoever. And mm-hmm. so, you know, also being raised by a single mother and a single grandmother, you know, in a very matriarchal household mm-hmm. that also shaped so much of my experiences. And, you know, again, going back to this idea of survival, you know, when, when you have no choice, but, you know, like when you're a widow and you are raising a daughter, you know, by yourself and, and then in turn, she is raising a daughter by herself. I mean, that's a very different reality than what, um, than what the dominant culture would say is, is the right way to, you know, raise a family or be or whatever. And so I think, um, yeah, that shaped a lot of my experiences. And so when I began to, what, you know, when I was in seminary and, and so much of what I was learning or so much of what I was um, being told is the right way to worship God or the right way to believe, you know, about God. And it just didn't fit with not only my own experiences, but just so many people from my own community. You know, mm-hmm. I just began to really question, well, is this, you know, the right way? Is there only one way to understand mm-hmm. God? I mean, and, um, and of course, you know, that led me to, to speak up, speak up against, you know, mm-hmm. very um, patriarchal or very white normative narratives um, mm-hmm. that were being fed to me as, you know, the way, right? Yeah. And yeah, that caused a lot of hardship, you know, of course, you know, when I'm speaking from my experiences and I'm saying, well, no, this is not, you know, th- this is not the right way to be or the only way to to mm-hmm. worship God. You know, folks, as you mentioned, were very, you know, uh, offended by it or I guess, um, you know, calling me divisive and um, because I was speaking from just something that, that people were unfamiliar with, you know. Um, yeah. And I think that's very common for many people um, who, who don't come from a white dominant normative sort of um, – background or reality, you know, when we start talking about our own experiences um, that don't line up with what we've been taught is normal or dominant, then it does cause a lot of disruption. Um, And, and we're the ones labeled disruptive instead of the, the dominant way of being, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, there's no curiosity sometimes on that dominant side. It's like, no, no, you've got it wrong. You've you've got it wrong. You've got it. I know with, with my own story with my father being Puerto Rican, and then that entire culture was basically sinful then. So Mm. he would try to just try like heck to assimilate. So that meant, you know, no dancing, no uh, Latin beats because, oh my, that that must come from Africa, I guess. And then we all know that can't be good, you know, there's judgmentalism there and, and right. there isn't an interest in, yeah, some cultures do it differently. That doesn't automatically mean it's sinful. It means it's unfamiliar. It's not your right, preference. Exactly. But it's not to say that Latin American cultures aren't don't have their own problems. There's chauvinism and machismo 100%. and, you know, there's not a good guy and a bad guy in this situation, but there are differences. And sometimes I think we make our preferences sacred instead of Mm. thinking that there's just differences that are neutral really differences people in white culture are going to have to figure out how to be curious and coexist and be interested and this shouldn't be some kind of traumatic thing exactly yeah the uh spanish-speaking people 
got here before the English speaking people did. So. Right, right. <laughs> I guess I um, want to kind of end on this new chapter of your life you're about to enter into as a parent, as a mother of a female, and wondering what you would like to pass on to her. What about your heritage? What about your Abuelita faith? Seems important that you'd like to start even from the beginning passing down. Yeah, thank you so much for asking that. Because I have, of course, you know, been thinking so much about it. Um, but something that keeps coming back over and over and over again to me is just this idea of of um, how land lives within us. And I think about that because, you know, my grandmother, she, she's been in this country already, I mean, at this point, like 50, over 50 years, um, you know, she immigrated here in the 60s. And um, you know, she doesn't speak a lick of English, which I love. I just love. She just like never learned English. <laughs> and, um, but she tells me, you know, still to this day, she's still alive and she has dementia and, you know, she's very, very old. And, but she'll tell me and, and with her dementia and with her old age, she's just become even more and more, um, obsessed. I don't know if that's the right word, but enamored mm -hmm. and, you know, um, nostalgic about her Island, about her country, about Cuba. Mm. And, um, you know, she'll tell me I've been in this country for 50 years and my, and I will die and my bones will not, will be buried in a land that's not my own. Mm. You know, of course she'll tell me that in Spanish, but I just find that so fascinating that, mm. you know, this land is, you know, this place, this, this country isn't her home, but it's been her home for, you know, the majority of her life at this point. Right. Mm. Um, and I find that so, um, just so overwhelming, honestly, for me. And I mm. think about that so much. And, and so that's something that I, as you know, as a Cuban American woman who's never lived in Cuba, um, who's always lived in the U S but yet, I feel this deep connection to my island as well. I feel like I've lived in Cuba, you know, although I haven't. I feel like I have. Mm -hmm. um, and something that I, you know, I want, I know that that also is going to live in my daughter, you know, that mm -hmm. she is, um, she might also live with that feeling of, of there's something in me, you know, mm -hmm. um, that exists elsewhere, or there's mm -hmm. something in me that was formed elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't want that. I, you know, I want to foster that. I want her to, um, not in a way of, you know, of, of feeling like she's not fully, you know, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. I want her to feel, you know, comfortable and at home here. But I also want her to know that that her DNA, you know, um, exists beyond um, this land. And, and that, um, yeah, that, that our ancestors, you know, the wisdom and the the wisdom and the, the um, knowledge and the sort of just the energy of our ancestors, you know, mm -hmm. lives in our bodies. And, mm -hmm. and I want her to be familiar with that, you know, I want her to be familiar with her ancestors and, and familiar with, you know, the, the people of the Caribbean and who she comes from. And, and mm -hmm. um, yeah, so those are all things that I, I think a lot about um, because they are such a huge part of me and I want them to also um, be, because be a huge part of her because I believe it is, it is a beautiful thing, you know, to, to have um, these ancestral ties and this ancestral wisdom that goes beyond what you might, may even understand, you know. Mm. Do you think it's possible that you and your daughter could take your abuelita's remains back to Cuba one day? Oh, um, I... Whoa, 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 wait a minute. 
The answer to this question will be offered as bonus material to anybody who is a supporter of this show. If you're already a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash sparkmymuse and listen away to this bonus material. Fascinating answer that Kat gives that has much to do with exile in the Cuban-American imagination and way of life. And it's a complicated answer. Totally fascinating. If you're not already a contributor to Spark My Muse and my work, this is your big opportunity and your chance to support my work at patreon.com forward slash spark my muse. And it's Latinx Heritage Month. Thank you so much for listening and for supporting my work. Now on to the rest of the show. Well, I thank you so much for joining me again on this hopefully very well recorded <laughs> episode. <laughs> and I wish you all the very best as a parent of your, your daughter and with your husband. And th- this oh, is really going to be an exciting time in your life. It could be very difficult with a newborn baby and everything, but yeah. it really opens up new wells of love that you never thought were there. So I, I wish you the very best oh. with that. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. A little nervous, but excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.